If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. It's our second in our series on the Ten Commandments, our first commandment we will deal with this morning, Exodus chapter 20, and I believe it's important for us to understand this commandment within its context again, so we'll read verses 1 through 3 of Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. The Lord God had called all of Israel together some three months after bringing them out of Egypt and the bondage of slavery. They had reached Mount Sinai, and he called all of the nation to gather around at the base of the mountain. And then God's glory appeared. The mountain was consumed with fire and smoke. The earth quaked. The trumpet sounded and just kept getting louder and louder. The thunder clapped, and God began to speak. And in Exodus chapter 20, we have the words that God spoke to his people. And he says, and it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for this time together, already being able to sing of your goodness and graciousness to us in providing salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we have no other name by which we may be saved but him. And so, Father, we come claiming that. We come holding that truth dear this morning. And we want to boldly say that we should have no other gods before you today, Father. Teach us this truth through your word this morning the power of your Spirit working in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I remember the first time I heard about the diet of worms. Now, some of you may uh, be thinking the same thing I thought the first time I heard about the diet of worms, a, a steady intake of earth or night crawlers, if you will. But that's not what the diet of worms was about. A diet is a formal assembly that is called together to deliberate a certain topic. And worms, it not really pronounce worms unless you're from Red Bank, South Carolina. It's a German city or German town pronounced worms. I don't pronounce it that way. It makes me feel too uh, uppity, if you will. But worms is one of the oldest cities in northern Europe situated about 40 miles south of Frankfurt. And in 18, uh, excuse me, 1521, the Diet of Worms took place. Martin Luther had been excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church on January 3rd, 1521. At that time, he should have been executed, but his friends interceded on his behalf, and they ordered a trial where even the emperor came, and that trial was the Diet of Worms. At the heart of Luther's teaching and others during the Reformation, there are these truths that we still hold today. The truths such as Scripture alone. It is God's Word alone and nothing else that is sufficient for our life and salvation. The truth of faith alone. We're justified before God by faith, not by our works. The truth of grace alone. Not anything we have done can save us. It's simply God's grace 
and His goodness toward us. The truth of Christ alone, we have already sung it and we'll continue to sing it, that it's only through the work and person of Jesus Christ that salvation can come to us. And the truth of the glory of God alone. No man or woman shall glory in themselves or give glory or give their glory to anybody or anything else. It is only God alone that deserves all glory. When asked to denounce the, his writings and truths such as this, Martin Luther stood before the emperor, the one who had the power to put him to death. He was asked to denounce those things and these truths, and he said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of scriptures, I am bound to the scriptures, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. And while we stand today not as ones who have inherited and have some differences with the Lutheran tradition, we stand with Luther in holding fast to these truths that he stood for that day. Luther, after saying, my conscience is captive to the word of God, said, here I stand, I can do no other. And why do I bring this up? Because it was 500 years ago this week, even today, 500 years ago, that the verdict was read against Luther. Luther, standing before the council, knew they could put him to death. But he also knew that he answered to a greater authority a greater authority than the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, an authority that would not only be there that day, but would be there for all eternity, an authority that had a kingdom that cannot be stopped or thwarted and his dominion will be forever. Luther knew that his authority was first, that it did not take any backseat to any other earthly king, that there was no really oppos real opposition to his authority. He knew his authority was the one true and living God alone. And this morning, we considered the foundation of that Reformation call in Latin, sole deo gloria, glory to God alone. And we consider it within this first commandment, the one that lays the foundation for all the rest of the commandments. God, as I said, has told us in our passage who He is. He's told us what He has done. He is the one true and living God, and He has redeemed His people. If you remember from last week, that's the, the, sta the starting point of the Ten Commandments. God has come and He says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, God has already redeemed them and saved them. Now as He begins to give them these commandments, these are the ones that they keep in order to live in the freedom that God has already provided. As we said, these Ten Commandments are how we as God's people today through His Son, Jesus Christ, express our love and devotion for God as we keep these. He says, not only do you know who I am, I am the Redeemer who has saved you. Now God wants us to know who we are, the redeemed, his treasured possession. And as his redeemed, treasured possession, he gives us the expectations. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. As our Redeemer who has saved us, as His treasured possession who He has redeemed, we are to have no other gods before the one true and living God. God will not share His glory, the glory that is only due to Him. 
As Luther and others throughout church history have stated, it is God who receives all of the glory. So this morning as we look to this passage, I want us to just see a couple things from this commandment. I want us to understand a few things about who God is and what he expects. First, I want us to understand this. God has no rivals. God has no rivals. To truly understand the first commandment, we must remember the context, again, that it was given. The Hebrews or the Israelites, just three months removed from Egypt. Egypt was one of the most polytheistic cultures in all the ancient world. Everything in creation had a God attached to it. When it was time for the crops, they worshipped the God of the crops. When they went to the river, they worshipped the God or the goddess of the river. When a sun rose up, they worshipped the God of the sun. They worshipped everything in creation had a God attached to it. Polytheistic, many gods, if you will. This was the heart of who they were, sun, rivers. They had the goddess of war, the goddess of love. You name it. And what the scriptures tell us is that Israel worshipped these gods too while they were there in Egypt. Years later, the Lord would speak about this, and he'd speak to the prophet Ezekiel when he said in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 5 through 7, he says that my people worship the gods of Egypt, and he caused them to turn away from them. In fact, what's important for us to note in this context that the Lord gives these commandments is that every society at that time that we are aware of and know was polytheistic. Every society that we see at this time is worshiping many gods. So the command here that is given in Exodus chapter 20, the first commandment in verse 3, this command is unprecedented. This is unlike anything they've ever heard. This is different from every other culture. This is different from every other group. Nobody has one god. Nobody worships one God. They all have many gods who do many different things. But here, this is unprecedented. God is saying to them, if they've been pulled out of this many-God culture, and as they have only witnessed this many-God cultures amongst others, God is calling them out and saying, I am to be your one and only. I'm to be your one and only. Don't add me to the mix, the Lord is saying. Don't think that you can just put me in or lump me in amongst the others. That's not going to happen. This God, the one true and living God, does not share his time. He does not share his authority. He does not share his glory. He does not share who he is. God is saying to Israel amongst these cultures that are following many gods, I am to be your one and only. In this way then, the one true God was stating that all the gods that you see in other cultures and other places, all the gods of Egypt are illegitimate. They're not real. And let's go beyond that. The first commandment is not suggesting that they are real. It's not suggesting that they are, in fact, other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. When he says no other gods, he's not even suggesting that these gods are real and that they're there. No other gods should be worshipped because in reality, there are no gods but one. In reality, there's, they are no, there are no gods but the one true creator God who made the heavens and the earth. As Solomon prays later in the scriptures, all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other 
Or has David praised to God and he calls on God, he says, there is none like you, O Lord, and there is no God besides you. We're all familiar, I believe, hopefully, from kings from the showdown at Mount Carmel between Elijah and the priests of Baal. As Elijah and the priests of Baal come, remember as they set up the altar there and, and they said, making this thing, let's, let's speak to our gods and let's call fire down from heaven and let's cry out to them. And for seven days there, for seven days they cried out, the prophets of Baal cried out to their gods. One of my favorite parts of that passage is Elijah sitting on the other side kind of talking junk to them. Maybe he's using the restroom. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's out for a little bit. Maybe he's not there. Elijah's proving his point that your gods do not exist. And remember, as Elijah comes, Elijah comes and it comes his turn. He pours the water on the altar over and over and over again. And the fire comes down from God as he calls on him. Isaiah says, there is no other God besides me a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me, the Lord tells us. The Bible insists, as we look to God's Word, the Bible insists all the way through that every other deity is a fraud. Every other deity is a counterfeit. Every other deity is paper, if you will. Remember the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 discussing whether or not they should eat food that is sacrificed to idols. Paul says, we know that an idol has no real existence. They're not real. And there is no God but one. As Paul urges those who worship idols in Acts 14, turn from these vain things to a living God. We recognize Paul's point as these vain things are not true. The truth is, though, that even though they're not real, even false gods hold a kind of spiritual power over their worshipers. Even false gods and counterfeit gods hold some kind of spiritual power over those who follow them. These figments of the imagination hold sway over people. And what's behind this? What's the goal of this? The goal of this is the great disturber of God's peace, Satan himself, the one who's the enemy of God and his people, a created being, not a God, but a created being in and of himself. Satan does not care what you worship as long as you do not worship the one true and living God. What's behind all this proliferation, if you will, of false gods is Satan himself trying to distract those around from worshiping the one true and living God. God. And so all these false gods are just a tactic. They're a ploy, distracting us from the Creator God who made everything, who holds everything together by the word of His mouth, the one who everything is through, from, through, and to. All of these are a distraction. Paul says to the Galatians who formerly worshiped those false gods, he says, formerly you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. And so today, while I say they're counterfeit, while I say they're illegitimate, that is true. But oftentimes we are held sway by those that are not gods. Oftentimes we put things in God's place that's not real and not true and have no legitimate authority over our lives, yet we give that authority to them. And what God is saying, even through Paul in Romans chapter 1, he's saying that is the height of foolishness. Why would you give 
Why would you give glory to that which is created in your own mind? Why would you give glory to that which is not real? Why would you give authority to that which is not true? Why would you give anything of your life to that which cannot help you? In fact, the gods of this world, as the Scripture says, they have eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. They have feet but cannot walk. The hands that have no power in them. They have mouths but cannot speak. But here at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, God, the God of heaven, creator of the heavens and earth, is speaking through the thunder to his people. He has eyes and he has seen their plight. He has seen their difficulty. He came and he rescued them. His hand is mighty to save them and it held the waters of the Red Sea back. And his feet are swift to come to his people when they are in need. The people who worship the gods of this world become like them, the Scripture says. Deaf, dumb, blind, and cannot speak and have no power. So why is it that we would turn to that which is not real? Why is it that we would turn to that which is counterfeit? A few reasons for this. And I don't want to get ahead of myself. We've got a couple more commandments to go. But in the reasons for this is we like for things to be easy for us. And we can fashion the idols into our own image, can't we? Make them feel more comfortable for us. But we must not forget that they're not real. And they have no power. As I said, this first commandment is the foundational command. All other commandments are built off of this one. When we come to this passage, you shall have no other gods before me. That's where it begins and ends, right? That's where it begins and ends. We must come and wrestle with this truth. We must come and wrestle with this command and understand, is it the one true and living God that we're willing to serve and to follow? There are no other gods. There are no other rivals to him. He is the one true and living God. And we as a people must wrestle with this one first. Is that who we follow? The rest of the commandments speak of acts you should or should not do, but this command establishes a relationship that you must have. And so what is that relationship then? If God has no rivals and he's the only one and this command demands this relationship that we must have first and foremost and we can't move past this until this is settled in our own life and heart, what is it that is the expectation here? God expects all of our life. God expects all of our life. In this first command, the word before is somewhat flexible, if you will. You shall have no other gods before me. One way it can be understood is that you shall have no other gods in my presence. And since God, the one true and living God, is omnipresent, he is everywhere, that means that we can never worship false gods. We never bring them into his presence. We never bow. So you don't bring any false gods into his presence if with your life. Another way is that we see the word before working is that you shall have no gods in my place. No other gods should come before me in priority. Many of us see it and understand it this way. Nothing should take the place of God in our lives. He is first. He has priority. So nothing comes before him in our life. Either way that you see this command working, it's saying the same thing. You don't bring any God 
before him. You don't put any God in front of him. When it comes to following or worshiping God, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what God is saying here is that when it comes to following him or worshiping him, it is all or nothing. You cannot halfway worship him. You cannot halfway follow him. You cannot put him in the mix as if over against some other things. You cannot be seeking counsel from various and sundry sources. This is the one true God, and no other God shall come before him. You cannot mix up where you are getting your, your, your notions, where you're getting your thoughts, where you're getting your direction. You cannot mix them up. As Joshua told the Israelites later, throw away your gods that you worshipped in the land of Egypt and worship the one true and living God. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord, Joshua says. Or at Mount Carmel with Elijah there, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. The options are clear. You cannot choose to serve both. Listen to the words of Jesus when he speaks here at the, in the Sermon on the Mount as he's giving testimony to who God is and what he has done. Listen to the words of Christ when he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus himself, just as Joshua said before, you can't serve two just as, as, as Elijah said, either Baal or God, which one are you going to serve? Jesus says the same thing. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other or love one and be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve two masters. Now what about what Jesus says next? Because I find what Jesus says next to be important. While this world is full of false gods, our world is full of idols, if you will. And as many have said, our hearts are idol factories that just keep producing new idols all the time. Our world is full of false gods. We are quick to create idols out of anything and everything. But oftentimes, we don't think of it this way. Because our idols are not like the idols in Scripture, right? We don't make golden calves and bow down to them. We don't do those things. Our idols look different. In fact, oftentimes our idols are good things that we turn into idols and we worship and put before the Lord. So Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And because of our own nature of turning even good things into idols, he says this next line that I think is quite important for us. He says, you cannot serve God and money. No one can serve two masters. You'll either hate one and love the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. No one can serve God and money. You cannot serve them both. Now why is it that he picks money out of this? Why does he bring this up? Think about the nature of money is, uh, uh, this morning. Money does not need you. Does everybody understand that? You need money. It is not standing there in need of you. You need it. You do not shape money. Money shapes you. When you serve money, you're consumed with it, earning it, saving it, spending it, consuming it, if you will. There's no room in your life and your heart for two, these two things, God and money. 
Why? There's no room for anything to master you other than God. God does not need you. You need him. You do not shape God. You're not changing God. God shapes your life. And money and God can't be in the same place because either money is shaping you or God is shaping you. Either you're demonstrating your need of the things of this world or you're demonstrating your need of God himself. And so Jesus says, that's why he says you can't serve two masters, both God and money. Both of these things, both of these things will shape you. Both of these things will change you. Both of these things will consume you if you will. So you can't have both of them. You must look to one or the other. You are to spend your time, the Lord says, not being consumed by the things of this world, You're to spend your time knowing God. You're to spend your time loving Him. You're to spend your time following Him. And that becomes the ultimate question that you ask here. How are we know whether or not, how do we know whether or not we're keeping this first commandment? You ask these questions of your life. Who is it that you love? I often say that you talk about the ones you love, don't you? Well, you talk about the things you love, for sure. Many of us, I, talk, I find myself talking about food more than anything else. Why? Because I love food. Amen? You talk about the things you love. The things you love dominate your conversation, whether it's sports or food or family or kids or whatever it is. You speak of the things you love. love. So listen to your conversation. What is it that you talk about? What is it that you love? Who is it that you praise? Who is it that you give glory to? Who is it that you trust? Who is it that you call on in times of help? Who is it that you thank in your life? All of these questions can be asked to evaluate whether or not you're keeping this first commandment. Remember, God is in this as a relationship, a covenant, if you will. And the best way to understand this exclusivity here, that there are no other gods and you that bring no other gods before me, The best way to understand this exclusivity is to understand it in light of a marriage. You are to be devoted to one another. God has redeemed you and saved you and called you out, not another. And you are to be devoted to him. How much would it go down for me if I were to simply look at my wife and say, Honey, I love you. You are great. You are wonderful. And I got this other woman over here that's great and wonderful as well. Go ahead. You know that wouldn't work. God is saying the same thing. For us, there is an exclusivity, he says. While there are no other gods, we can be tempted to chase after this false god and that false god and everything else to fill our life. And God is saying, I am the Lord. You are to have no other gods before me. He has saved them and redeemed them and he calls them to follow him exclusively with their whole life. We do not worship a God. We worship the God. And he wants an exclusive relationship with each and every one of his people. We must not turn from him. We must hold fast to him. Which brings us to the third and final point. God receives all of the glory. God receives all of the glory. I believe that Isaiah 42.8 restates the first commandment in a slightly different way. When Isaiah... uh, records the word of God and he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. 
when the law came on Mount Sinai, it came with much glory. That word glory means weight. That word glory means heaviness. And so if you're putting it on a scale, if you will, all glory goes to God because he's the only one that can bear that weight. And so glory comes as this weight and heaviness. And in the scriptures, it expresses an idea, the idea of importance or greatness or honor or splendor or power. All of that goes to him. He is of highest importance. He is of the greatest of honor and splendor and power. So all glory goes to God. Again, think of that scene in Exodus 20. Fire and smoke, the earth quaking, the trumpet sounding, and the, the Lord speaks out of the thunder. The glory comes down on that mountain at that moment. And when Moses goes into that glory to hear from God, what happens when he comes back out? Do y'all remember? His face glowed. His skin glowed. He'd been into the glory of God and he's come out glowing and shining so much so that he had to cover his face with a veil. Now that is glory, right? And you may say, let me see that. I want to see that kind of glory. If the Lord would only come down and, and speak to us like this, bring the fire and the smoke and make the earth quake this morning. If the Lord would only thunderously come to us through, speaking through the thunder and have the trumpet sounding, if that would only happen this morning, if I could just see that glory, then I would believe and I'd follow. Well, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that you've seen something greater than that. For John chapter 1 tells us, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Speaking of Jesus Christ our Lord, that Word that clapped like thunder has become flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Something far greater than that glory on the mountain that came down when the law was given is that glory in Christ Jesus that came before us. And what we see here, what Paul kind of lays out in 2 Corinthians, I'll try to explain if I will because Paul wants to make this very point. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4, he says, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, speaking of that law in 2 Corinthians 3-7, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? In other words, you saw the glory that came through the giving of the law, so Moses' face had to, had to glow and they put the veil on, veil on it. But now the Spirit has come through Christ. How much more glory is coming now? And then he goes on, he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome that was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord 
is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. In other words, Moses sees the glory of God in the giving of the law and they put a veil over his face, but now Christ has come. And we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ far more glorious than what Moses experienced, far more wonderful than what he saw. And we walk around not with veiled face, but with unveiled face because we look upon Christ. And when we look upon Christ, what happens? The light shines through us for all the world to see and the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And so what we preach then, what we preach and what we offer, just as God delivered Israel from the bondage in Egypt through Moses, whom he gave the law, now he has delivered his people through a greater bondage, the bondage of sin and death, and how this people have been delivered through, from this greater bondage with a greater deliverer, not Moses who's been called out of the of, um, Egypt, if you will, but now it is Christ Jesus, his own son who has come. He's the greater deliverer. And Christ Jesus comes and he shines with the true glory of God so that all the world may see. And when we see him, we shine. And Paul says, therefore, this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So as a church, we don't do wishy-washy. We don't plant ourselves on unsolid ground. We don't stand firmly on top of the fence. We don't practice deceiving or underhanded ways. There's no reason to. We simply proclaim the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we simply say that there is only one God. There is not another. And that one God demands our worship. It demand, he demands our all in all and everything that we have. We don't have any other gods before him. He is true and he alone stands supreme. We don't do wishy-washy here. We stand firm. And we call men and women everywhere. If they have been redeemed by Christ if they have been redeemed by our Savior and they have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we call them to say, you shall have no other gods before him. God does not share his glory. He does not share his glory. In John chapter 12, Jesus says that the main reason people do not believe him is because they have loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Who do you love? Who is it that takes top priority in your life? Is that you? Do you love the glory that comes from man which is fleeting, momentary, flickering, and wasting away? Or do you love the glory that comes from God? Christ Jesus our Lord who has come to give us life. Who is it that you love? Who is it that you trust? 
Who is it that you run to? Who is it that you turn to in the time of crisis? If your answer to those questions is the Lord God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the redeemer and savior of my life, Jesus Christ, if your answer is that, then you hold fast to that first commandment. You shall have no other gods before him. God does not share his glory. Let me ask you one last question. Who is it that you thank? Who is it that you thank? Do you thank God every day for what he's given you and what he's blessed you with? Do you thank God every day for Christ Jesus, the Savior and Lord who's come? That's a testimony that you recognize just as the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. All glory goes to him. May we be able to say this same truth with the psalmist this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done in Jesus Christ. There is no other Savior. There is no other Lord. There is no other hope, Father, for there is no, no other God before us. And so, God, we worship you alone. We glory in you alone. We praise you alone. And this morning, Father, if someone is here and they've been thinking that they can share your glory with another, if they've been thinking, Father, that they can mix you in with all the other things they want to follow and want to serve, God, disabuse them of that now. Help them to know that there are no other gods before you. And help every single one of us today, Father, through trusting in Jesus Christ, your Son, see the glory that only belongs to you in the face of Jesus Christ and follow you. God, may we all say today that we have no other gods before you. All of this we ask in Jesus' name. If you're here today and you need to give your life to Christ, you've been trading out his glory and mixing it with others, today's the day to come. Today's the day to come and be a part of this church body that we proclaim Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior and follow him alone. Let's stand together and sing.